Our scripture reading this morning is coming from the book of Revelation, chapter 8. If you could turn there in your Bibles. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This ends the reading of God's word, and at this time, children ages three to, five, three to kindergarten can be dismissed to the little landing. How thankful I am for Pastor Duncan's preaching last Sunday, and how thankful we are for the privilege of worshiping with his daughter and son-in-law, Nate and Sarah, his grandchildren, his son and daughter-in-law, Heather and Andrew, and many family and friends who love the Rosses continue to pray for Michelle, Duncan's wife, as she recovers from hip surgery. I wrote a sermon many years ago on Revelation 8, 1 through 5, and I can't wait to preach it, but it has to wait till next week. There's so much I want to give you for your spiritual life and encouragement that I've received out of verses 13 through 17 of chapter 7 that I want to pray for God's help and open this for you as a gift of hope to each one of you. Those listening by live stream, those present in this room, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for revelation. I thank you for its power to achieve what it commands. It doesn't just hold us out a great vision and say, there, now go do it. It it achieves it in us. And, and as, as a great sinner beloved of a great Savior, I feel weak and limited and broken and unable to achieve that great miracle of hope in the hearts of your people. But you can do it. In fact, your spirit is here to do it. You're hovering sweet and heavy where your people are gathered in Jesus' precious name. You're going to create hope in our hearts right now. Even those who are worshiping at a distance or by viewing the recording. The word of God will go out. It won't return void. You'll watch over it to perform it. And it will create the very hope that it heralds. Do it in me. Do it in us, Lord. For everything in our lives, good and worthy and precious, requires hope. Hope in God. Supply it, I pray now, through Christ, miraculously, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. When you have hope in Christ, it helps heal every relationship. It sustains every personal crisis. When you're hoping in Christ, no matter what hard crisis you're going through, that hope in Christ will sustain you and help you. Hope in Christ emboldens loving witness. It emboldens us to go to people who don't know Christ and to share Christ with them even though they do not wish to hear it. It overcomes through victory health battles 
It perseveres in our lives through dark nights of depression or despair or fear or despondency. It steadies us when the storms of life are raging. It warns us against every temptation. It it steals us against fear and doubt and unbelief. It shines brightest on God as a light of praise when we hope in Christ, though we go through many hard and painful difficulties. Revelation is a letter mainly written to the churches of Asia Minor to say, hang in there, hope in Christ, it's worth it. Yes, you battle now. Yes, you suffer now. Yes, you are under duress and difficulty now, but hope in Christ. Prove yourself worshipers of his worth, not just fair weather fans like I am with the twins. Oh my goodness. But lovers of Christ always, even when it costs you dearly, hope in Christ. Can you imagine any worthwhile thing in the Christian life that isn't helped and fed by hope in Christ? If you're going to love your enemies, you have to have hope in Christ. If you're going to do kind things for people who are going to mock and ridicule and persecute you in response, you have to have hope in Christ. If you're going to endure hardship and imprisonment and loss, For the sake of knowing Christ, you have to have hope in him. If you're willing to die well, to die trusting in him, to die for your faith in Christ, you must have hope in him. John, led by the Holy Spirit, is providing such hope here in the passage you and I are about to read. Revelation 7, 13 through 17. I want you to see, I want you to feel and experience, and then to pass on to others this convictional hope. That's what I'm calling it, convictional hope. John never uses the word hope in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It doesn't show up in this book. But you remember how the Apostle Paul talked about hope in Revelation, excuse me, Romans 15.3. Romans 15.3. He said, whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction that through the encouragement and endurance of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul says in Romans 15, we get hope from reading the Old Testament scriptures. That's what they're there for. They produce hope in us. Well, which book of the New Testament do you think alludes to and refers most to the Old Testament of all the New Testament books? It's the book of Revelation. Greg Beal, one of the commentators, counts 1,100 times the book of Revelation alludes to the Old Testament. So if the Old Testament produces hope, then this scripture-rich, Old Testament-rich book of Revelation is going to produce hope in all who read it, and we will have hope produced in us even by these verses that are ready to be enjoyed by us. This hope is this power to so trust, so believe, so confidently and convictionally bank our lives on God that that hope does not disappoint us even through suffering. You remember how the Apostle Paul told the Romans also in chapter 5, he said, through Christ we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's a phrase that captures what I'm longing to have happen in my heart and yours as we read Revelation 7. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He goes on to talk about how hope lassos joy and pulls it into our lives even though we're suffering. In verse 3, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which is an odd phrase. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. So here's the equation. Hope in your life 
lassos joy and pulls it near. The joy of God. Suffering comes, but the suffering doesn't harden us away from God or Christ and make us flee. Rather, suffering for Jesus' sake softens us and makes us want to go near God and obey Him and keep our vows and live for Him and serve and obey Him with even more endurance. And that's the picture Paul has. Verse 4 says that endurance produces character, the character of Christ, of course, and that character produces more hope because we look back on our lives and say, wow, I could never have made myself look more like Jesus if I had tried some other way. But this suffering, plus hope in God, lassoing the joy and bringing it into my life, has actually made me look more like Christ. I have his character. And that's why Paul can say hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now I know perfect hope is on display for us in these few verses, the last few verses, the last paragraph that I want to dwell on in chapter 7, verses 13 through 17 of Revelation. I know that this is a perfect hope held out to us. How do I know that? Because in plain sight, if you look carefully with me at these verses, you will notice there are seven features of our life in heaven laid out. And whenever the book of Revelation or the Bible uses the number seven, what does it mean? It means perfection. Here's perfect hope. Seven of them. Let's count them. We serve him day and night when we're in heaven with him. His tabernacle of heaven is spread over us. Three, we never hunger or thirst anymore. Four, no sun will strike or scorch us. Five, the lamb shepherds us. Six, we drink from springs of living water. And seven, we have every tear wiped away from our eyes by God himself. Seven blessings of the heaven which is to come. Seven blessings which make up this perfect hope that we place our confidence in convictionally so that we live in such a way as to aim toward, arrive in, and enjoy fully in heaven. Now remember, carefully, as I'm walking through these verses, I want you to remember two wonderful things. One, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what's awaiting you. It's coming. This is the hope that awaits you. This is what you're aiming toward when you call someone to be saved. This is what you're calling them to enjoy. This is down the line, guaranteed, inalterable, yours to enjoy. This is why we Christians ought to be so very crazy happy all the time because we have these seven perfect blessings of hope awaiting us, but that's not all. The very God in heaven who rules there and gives us all these blessings, the seven features of our perfect hope, is also the God who's at work in your life right now today. He's in this room. He's in your heart. If you're trusting in him, if you're not yet trusting in him, he is ganging up on you right now. He's going to draw you to himself. He loves you, and he's going to win you, and he's going to remove every excuse and barrier you can think of from coming to him. And he's going to melt your heart with this vision of heaven that is belonging to and secure for all those who are trusting in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ here today, you're going to say, that's my God. That's where I'm going. Every joy I have here now in seed and foretaste form is fully and infinitely complete when I get there with him. But that means the very joys of heaven are wafting like the sweet smell of dinner cooking 
into my life before I even sit at the table. Someone steps back and says, you conservative right-wing evangelical Bible-thumping Christians. You think you can just talk about heaven and get all your people excited about what's going to happen someday far away which is just a silly myth. The only way you've got to believe in it is it's written in your book. How in the world can I believe that this is even true? How do I not call you the biggest fool for believing that you're going to live forever in a relationship with your God in a setting just like these verses outline? They might take it a step further with a little bit of an edge on it. They might say, as many have, and I've read often, doesn't your thinking about heaven so much make you just want to huddle up and and lift the drawbridge and just hunker down until you get to here as quick as you can and forget everybody else who's going to hell in a handbasket? Doesn't it make you unkind and unuseful and unhelpful in this world? You hear that, don't you? That's a criticism. If you're honest, sometimes it lands with an authentic pinch. Reading these verses and walking through Revelation first has its own confirmation. When you read the Bible, the Bible is not just telling us about something. It's actually alive. It's living. We don't treat it that way very often. You hear people talking about it as if it's just a dead textbook. But it's actually alive. It's the Word of God like no other book is. And it's fixed. It's never changing in its original manuscripts, not even in its translations, but in its Greek and Hebrew. It's original manuscripts. It's fixed. Meaning, God is going to speak to us here and there's a confirming evidence within the Bible that in its living and fixed nature, it's bearing witness to all with ears to hear that it's actually true in a profound and undeniable way. But oh, the mercies of our God. Oh, the mercies of our God. What if you were to ask him and say, Help me, God, to believe that heaven is real. You say there are seven glorious realities. Help me to actually know it. What would you do for me? How would you help me to get rid of my unbelief and replace it with true faith that this heaven is real? And if I trust in your son, Jesus Christ, I will have not only these blessings, but these blessings will lead me right up directly into his face. One commentator set me to thinking, a glorious insight that I had never hit on before, and I present it now to you. What if it were the intention of the Spirit of the living God who wrote the whole of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, that he were to give us through giving John, and John writing it down in this vision, seven features of the heaven to come that we're entering into, this perfect hope we have, and to match up in an undeniable way the seven features of the glories of the heaven that we will live in forever with God in eternity, and the way God himself created creation in Genesis chapter 1 in the first place. 
Try this on for size. In the heaven to come, we will serve him day and night because he first created day and night. His tabernacle of heaven is spread over us because the very next thing that happened in Genesis 1 is God spread the firmament over creation like a canopy. We, never in hunger, we will never hunger or thirst or be deprived of anything in this heaven to come because the very next thing that happens in Genesis 1 is God creates the land and the seas, the fruits and the vegetation and the plants for food. By this time, I'm hooked. No sun will strike us or scorch us in the heaven to come because God made the stars, the sun, and the moon and called them good in the very next thing that happens in Genesis 1, and he rules over them. He names them. He calls stars in the sun the way I call my dog. Here, boy. Only the stars come. The lamb shepherds us in the heaven to come. Because the very next thing that happens in Genesis 1 is God creates the flocks and the herds and the birds and the swarms and he gathers them according to their kind. The way a shepherd gathers. In the heaven to come we drink from springs of living water because God in Genesis 1 made humans in his image. That is he put his life like a fountain of living water in all human beings and his eternal life in saved human beings. He is himself life. Yahweh means life, and we drink from him as living water, we who trust in him through faith in Christ. And in the heaven to come, every eye, by the hand of God, holding us close, will wipe away every tear because we are made to enjoy worshiping him with all creation forever and ever. The tears are an echo of what sin brought into the world, rebellion, evil, and death. And yet God conquers rebellion, evil, and death through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while the lamb is gathering us and we are stunned and shocked and overwhelmed that we are no longer under evil's grip or temptation or the devil or lies or our flesh or our own wayward heart, but we are in fact in the very heaven of God Received, welcomed, healed, held, redeemed, loved. Tears will flow and he will wipe them each one away. Genesis 1 then is not merely the recounting of how the world began. It is that. It's not merely something to argue over. It's actually a foretaste of the heaven that we will arrive in. Genesis 1 and Revelation 7, echoed again in Revelation 21, are of a piece. They're made by the same God. And let your breadth of redemptive history and theological apprehension embrace such a wide, vast vision, such that when you look at nature all around you, your own bodies, your families, the leaves, the water, the clouds, the skies, the stars molecules, and all that makes them up, God says, and you need more to believe in my heaven? Have I not given you all nature to behold, and I called it good, and then I built my heaven in exactly the same way, only infinitely better and incapable of falling or dying? Look around you if you want all manner, untold, limitless, bounding, bounding manner, manner of evidence that my heaven is real. 
I want you to see four observations about our hope in these passages. The ground of our hope, the grandeur of our hope, the gravy of our hope. Yep, I said gravy. And the goodness of our hope. First, the ground of our hope, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The very heart of the Bible and the very climax of the Bible here in Revelation 7 is that there was a Savior, the God-man Christ Jesus, who hung on the cross, and he hung on the cross for no sins of his own, but he died on the cross for my sin and for yours. He is our substitute. His blood was shed, cleansing us who believe in him from all unrighteousness and granted to us his righteousness that we might wear as a clean white robe. It's shocking and it's meant to be shocking that his blood cleanses our robes and makes them white. It's meant to be mind-boggling as as to how that happens. It's a mighty work of God's grace. It's meant to tell us that we are gathered, we who believe in Christ, in heaven, and we will be wearing white robes. We will have a body that's united with our spirit For it's after the the return of Christ and the gathering of his elect to go with him into heaven. It's after we are then clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we will stand before him and it's all the believers. Revelation 22.14 shows that all the believers are collected and gathered around heaven wearing these robes. Listen to this verse. Blessed are those who wash their robes, same group as chapter 7, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, eternal life and that they may enter the city by the gates, that is the eternal city of our salvation. We come out of the great tribulation. There is tribulation, Jesus said, both in Matthew 24, John says it repeatedly in many other passages. The tribulation consists all the way through the history of the church. Ever since Jesus rose again and then ascended to the Father, tribulation has marked us. All the prophets said it would happen. Jesus said it would happen. Jesus endured it. The apostles and the early church endured it. Every Christian faithful since then and shall endure it until Christ returns. But there is at the end a season of time called the Great Tribulation. It's named specifically in Matthew 24, 21. Jesus says it explicitly. He says it's at that time that there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see him coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. John so also talks about the great tribulation, and he says all these have come through it, and they are standing in the Lord's heaven wearing white robes upon their resurrected bodies. That's the vision of Revelation 7. It's for the future. It's the glory of God bringing through the tribulation and difficulty the wrath that he brought on all the earth but protects his people in the midst of it throughout all history. He's been doing it all the way through. He started with Noah and his family and continued with Israel through their history. He did so with Christ and with the apostles and with the church ever since, including us and those who come after us. This gospel cleanses the people and dwellers of heaven white 
and clean. It's Christ having redeemed all things. Our sin, our lives, and everything around us. Colossians 1.19, through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the ground of our hope. If you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then hear my voice and receive this call. Turn from trusting in whatever else you're trusting in. Turn from hoping in whatever else you're hoping in and hope in Christ. Flee to him. Say to him, Lord, I want to be among those who are white with my robe in heaven. I want a new resurrected body. I want you to protect me through hardships and difficulty and tribulation and especially through the great tribulation. I want to be among that number. The greatest thing in all the world is to be saved because when you're saved, you are wearing white and standing in heaven, ready to worship the Lord forever and ever. The grandeur of our hope is next. It's verse 15. It says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Here the grandeur of God is on display. This word shelter is skine in Greek. It's used five times in the Bible. It means tent or canopy. It's, it's the idea that John uses once in John chapter 1, his gospel, and then four other times here in Revelation to say God spreads a, spreads a massive tent, a canopy all over his heaven, and it's to shelter us. It's this idea that God says, I'm gathering everyone inside my large canopy and you will have all my firmament to see my glory. It's like the Holy of Holies is opened up in the Old Testament temple and we're welcomed into the Holy of Holies and inside the Holy of Holies, the glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord covers the Holy of Holies and we dwell there. It's, it's like heaven is the biggest Holy of Holies anybody could ever imagine because all the redeemed are there. The angels, the elders, the four living creatures and all the firmament is, of God is on display in heaven and he is receiving all the glory that could possibly come to him as he displays this skine, this tent, this firmament. I told you that the one other place John uses this is John chapter 1. Listen. And the word became flesh and tented, skine, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you have trouble believing that heaven is so full of glory that you'll look up in every direction and all you'll see is the glory of God? Well, you've already seen you can look around nature and see the glory of God everywhere you look. But, oh, focus your gaze on Christ. He didn't give up his glory when he came to earth. Oh, no, far from it. We have seen his glory in all its fullness when Christ came. Read the Gospels and see how glorious he is. Notice his grace and his truth and receive them for yourself. They are the substance, the consistency of his glory. This is exactly what Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to come be with him so that he can show off his glory. He prayed it in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And it's why Paul said, you know, I'm torn between two things for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. What gain? I get to see the glory of God like a firmament. It covers me like a tent. For me to live 
It's ministry in Jesus' name for me to die is far better, Paul said. The supreme experience of Christ's glory in heaven is not the textures, the colors, the smells, the tastes, or the materials of gold and precious stones. Those are all meant to help us look through them like a lens to see the beauty and glory of Christ himself. Listen to this description. It mirrors, it's really a restatement of Revelation 7. It comes from Revelation 21, and it captures somewhat of the glory. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the whole city is prepared as a bride. The people of God are, are, are described as a city prepared as a bride, coming down out of heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Perfect healing, perfect shelter, perfect welcome, perfect homecoming, perfect joy in the presence of the Lamb. No fear, no sickness, no regret, no shame, no guilt, no death, no failure. And the certain discovery that nothing in your life you're enduring now was ever wasted. Oh, that you would make that discovery before heaven. And an ocean of God's joy to swim in and rest beside in his presence with unspeakable beauty and perfect peace. It is what you and I were made for. If we look around and find all the joys of family and nature and relationships and food and drink and the pleasures of marriage and all the blessings of art and design, and music, and poetry, and giftings of every sword and stripe. If all of these, though temporary, broken, frail, disintegrating as they are, are a delight to any of us, and they are, then that tells us undeniably we were made for another world where such things are transposed up into the glory of God and made perfect and never end. The grandeur of our, of our hope, built on the ground of our hope, is the glory of God's sky-stretching presence. His skene, his tent, his canopy. Third, the gravy of our hope is a meal. Look at verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The picture in heaven is that we're going to eat. We have those bodies. They're clothed in white. No, we probably won't spill. But pass the gravy anyway. I mean, it's going to be this glorious meal, this marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 says, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It's this invitation that goes out to all the earth. Come and feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come be loved and cared for and honored and delighted in by the husband, Christ, as you are collectively his bride. 
There's no hunger, no thirst, no lack, no poverty, no greed, no oversized government, no oversized industry, no oversized ego. Only the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, a feast, a meal, a wedding. I love how Ligon Duncan observes that the whole of history, redemptive history, can be bracketed by the invitation to come and eat. He says the serpent was evil and he bypassed Adam in the garden and he tempts Eve by telling her to take and eat. And she did and the whole world fell. And then just before Christ's binding of Satan at the cross, before he died on the cross, thousands of years later, he said to his disciples, this is my body, take and eat. And then I look here and notice at the coronation of our joy having arrived in heaven, we will take and drink and eat all the provisions of heaven. After all, Jesus said he would fast and not drink of the fruit of the vine until we arrived. This marriage feast in heaven fulfills the most important events on earth. The temptation, the Passover, the first Lord's Supper, the cross, the resurrection, the second coming, and the unending joy of heaven. Pass the gravy, take and eat. Is Christ food to you? You will not be able to live the Christian life by efforts of good moral obedience, duty. You won't. You'll either think yourself far too proud because you're successful at it, at least you appear, or you'll be discouraged all the time because you feel like a failure at it. The Christian life is to be led feasting, feeding on Christ. He said, I'm the bread of the life, bread of life, whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever drinks from me shall never thirst. Coming and drinking and believing is this ability to feast on Christ, not the ability for you to just guard yourself from all the dangers that are out there and to live as unruffled and as careful a righteous, holy, perfect religious life that you possibly can. That's not the call of the Bible, nor the call of this passage from heaven. Rather, the call is to feast upon Christ. We will not eat anything here or in heaven that in and of itself is a replacement for Christ, who's the bread of life. Trust him. Press in. Feed upon him. Lord, I'm sorry for fattening myself on so many toxic foods in the world and in sin and in the dreams and machinations of my own mind and heart. Please make me hungry for you. For those who are hungry and thirsty shall be satisfied. That's the gravy of our hope. Finally, the goodness of our hope comes from verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Yes, that's supposed to jar you. Don't, don't read quickly over it. I just read too quickly over it, didn't I? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Usually it's a person, like David, shepherding the lambs. That's what we know. Here in heaven, the Lamb shepherds all the people. And he will guide them to springs of living water. Makes you think of Psalm 23, doesn't it? And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Notice how tender this is. This is one of the most tender passages in the Bible, which is one of the most tender books in, in all of reality. This is one of the most beautiful pictures that you could ever imagine of the tender love of God. There's no other God like this. You can go to any other religion. You can go to any other philosophy or thought, way of thinking, any other worldview, and you'll never find a God more tender than this God who shepherds 
as a lamb. People dressed in white, but treated as lambs. You see the glory here? The lamb says, you're my lambs. The lamb speaks as a lamb to lambs. Have you ever read Psalm 23, not just as an encouragement in your life? It is that. I already said everything here is for your life today. But have you ever read Psalm 23 as describing a picture of what it's going to be like for you to be in heaven? Listen. Imagine heaven, you in the arms of Christ. Listen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When sin came into the world, God's only and rightful and just response is constantly to eject it from himself, to exile. He cast out Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He exiled the people of Israel to Babylon. He made Christ as a representative of the true Israel, and he exiled him all the way to the cross and to death and to the grave. Even when the early church was huddled together in Jerusalem, he exploded them in the diaspora so that they would obey the command to go to all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Because sin is in the world, because there are people not worshiping the living Christ somewhere today, maybe in your household, maybe in your extended family, maybe among your Facebook friends, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your city, or in your globe, the globe that God calls you to own and pray for, there are people who do not know and do not worship the living God through Jesus Christ. And because of sin, God scatters. But in this picture of heaven, you have to feel, you have to see, you have to hear that what he's finally done as the lamb who shepherds us is to gather, 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 gather us to himself. He's preserved us. He's protected us. We will learn in heaven all the many hundreds of thousands of dangers that he kept us from. He, we will learn in heaven how all the difficulties that he permitted were actually intended for good, even though someone else intended them for evil. Isaiah 25 has given a prophetic vision where Isaiah prophesies this future heaven. He says in chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the Lord takes you to himself. And he holds you. And he says, it's okay. 
It's all good. And it's not just fiction. It's not just lies. It's all good because I took care of everything evil, everything deadly, and everything sinful. It's all done. They don't exist anymore. And he, with his hand, wipes away from your face upon your arrival in heaven every burning tear of shame, every tender tear of sorrow, every aching tear of loss, every angry tear of betrayal, every weary tear of exhaustion, every tear wiped away by the hand of God. When Christ first arose from the dead, he spoke Mary's name to her directly. Mary, Rabboni, he knows your name and he'll speak your name. And he has a new name for you. He speaks your new name, as we learned in Revelation 2, to you when he wipes away the tears caused by sin, evil, and, the, and death. For all three are no more. And with affection, he speaks your name and the new name you have, lifting all the curses for nothing profane or unholy may dwell in his heaven. Do you have this hope in Christ? Is this what you await? I look around and I see nature reminding me that this is exactly the kind of heaven he's created and this is in fact what we await who believe in him. There will be people ready to pray with you in these open spots as always if today would be the day you want to turn your life over to Christ and receive him such that you might as, as well as we be dressed in white and have all your tears wiped away. Let's pray. How overwhelmed I am, Lord, by the glories of what I read and the ineptitude of what I say. The gap is stunning. Please allow these dear ones to have heard a better sermon than what I preached. Please allow the hope that this passage creates to rise in each of us. This perfect sevenfold hope. Thank you so much for Christ and his death on the cross. Thank you for his being our lamb who shepherds us for eternity. Thank you for the promise that every good blessing of heaven is ours now in measure. Perfectly dispensed by you and applied by your spirit for each challenge we face today. There are sorrows that we will talk about at the meal table. There are sorrows we'll face this afternoon. There are sorrows we'll face this week ahead. And there are sorrows every day after that. But your word, your heaven, your son, and your gospel are sufficient for each. Bless us richly, Lord, who know and have this truth that is ours, that we will be among the white-clad worshipers in heaven. And bless those who hear this vision of heaven from Revelation 7 and say, that too is my home, and I am homesick for it. Draw them to yourself this day 
and let them not have a moment's rest until they find their rest in you. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we now respond to your word as you help us. Amen. Would you stand?